Section 19 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. Chapter 3. The Century of Louis the Fourteenth, Part 1. The murder of Henry the Fourth appeared at first to secure the triumph of Austria and of Spain. His widow, the Queen Regent, as an Italian, was naturally subject to the influence of the Italians so plentiful at court. Her foster sister, Eleonora Galigai, Concino Concini, Marechal d'Ancre, and Gonzaga, Duc de Nevers. Although she at first protested her resolve to carry on her husband's policy, her sympathies ran in an opposite direction. The Florentine banker's daughter was not bold enough to daunt the German emperor and the Habsburg king, and the pious Catholic was timidly anxious as to the spiritual welfare of a sovereign whose allies were Lutherans and heretics. Therefore, despite her fair words to Sully, Marie de Medicis soon veered her ship. In 1611, Sully was sent from the helm. The queen broached anew an old project which her husband had rejected of marrying her son Louis XIII, nine years old, to a Habsburg princess, and giving her daughter to the heir of Spain. At the same time she promised no longer to harass the house of Austria de ne plus troubler les princes d'Autrichiens dans les affaires d'Allemagne. Meanwhile, in France, the great feudal lords broke out in revolt against the feeble sovereign, who soon made peace, or rather bought it, paying out by the million those gold coins which the economical Henry had stored in the Bastille. The states-general were summoned to debate and decide the affairs of the kingdom. This was in May, 1614, the last month of liberty. They will not meet again until 1789. The most memorable result of their convocation was the bringing into note of a promising young prelate who will make for himself a name outside the church. This was Armand Duplessis de Richelieu, Bishop of Luçon. The assassination of Concini soon left him in sole power. At first blush, Richelieu appeared eminently a man of the Queen's party. The future cardinal was not only a prelate, but a believer. He was a partisan of Concini. He appeared the champion of the church. And no doubt he lent himself rather freely to this interpretation, partly because his private and personal convictions were not unlike those of the zealots, and also because he was anxious to secure the support of the majority. But his sole aim was the grandeur of his country, by whatever means that best might be attained and he was soon convinced that the advantage of France lay, abroad, in the humiliation of the Catholic powers, and at home in reducing the Protestants to the common measure of the kingdom. They possessed in the west at La Rochelle a sort of metropolis, which served as centre to what was virtually a Huguenot republic, a state within the state, much as a Protestant Ulster might be, safeguarded from the home rule of a Catholic Ireland, an idea nowise distasteful to our modern minds, nor indeed to the federative principles inherent in the West and South of France, 
but abominable in the sight of that downright absolutist and unitarian richelieu so he laid siege to the protestant capital and demolished la rochelle the huguenots had to surrender their free towns though they were permitted to enjoy their religion and then having scotched the protestant at home richelieu steered his ship toward the protestant abroad renewed the entente with the lutheran princes of germany with the scandinavian courts and bestowed in marriage not on the spanish infant but on the prince of wales the king's sister that young daughter of henri iv and marie de medicis henriette marie whom we english know as henrietta maria mournfully predestined to return one day to france and seek at saint-germain an austere and tragic refuge as the widow of king charles i thus having parried as he thought a possible danger from protestant federalists at home or catholic imperialists abroad having squared both the reform and the house of austria richelieu turned his mind to the administration of the kingdom the provinces were each in the charge of a royal governor a sort of viceroy with great local powers and prestige these governors chosen from the feudal nobles were a danger to the crown richelieu set some one to watch these guardians to control these controllers he established a system of intendants shall we say prefects or proconsuls generally of bourgeois origin who transmitted the king's orders surveyed their execution informed his ministers as to local interests and generally secured both the obedience of the provincial authorities and the centralization of affairs thus in all directions he prepared the glories of the succeeding reign ay even in letters for richelieu was himself a writer thought himself indeed the peer of corneille and founded the french academy the reign of richelieu was the foreshadowing of the reign of louis quatorze i say the reign of richelieu for the dull grave pious louis the thirteenth had as a king this one great merit that recognizing in his minister a man of genius he left affairs entirely in his hands they reigned then together for eighteen years and in sixteen forty three they died within a few weeks of each other leaving france to a monarch louis the fourteenth four years old in sixteen twenty six richelieu then at the height of his power told louis the thirteenth that in a short while he hoped to re-establish france in the prosperity and peace which he had enjoyed under his predecessor mills and works and shops should again enrich the towns the fields should flourish religion unite men and not divide them the poor should no longer stagger under the burden of tax and war loan so said the great man meaning all he said but no man however great can reach at the same time two goals placed in opposite directions richelieu had turned his back on the france of henry the fourth he was leading the way to the france of louis quatorze farewell then that silk-weaving farming tolerant france that liberal and in some degree self-governing france of which between fifteen ninety and sixteen ten we have enjoyed too brief a vision it was a france akin to england and to holland 
happy, wealthy, free, but soon abandoned for an ideal of splendid unity and military glory and a theory of Catholic supremacy and centralized absolute power. If we might at will turn back the course of history, would we? The reign of Louis the Fourteenth was in its way one of the great magnificences of the world. The crown and glory of its century, the golden age, the classic period, when France in its full effulgence radiates a grandeur and a glory that no state has known since the splendors of antiquity. Sad that the two ideals should apparently exclude each other. That we cannot walk in the paths of pleasantness and peace, plan that great concert of the United States of Europe, live sparely, dream greatly, and frame the common happiness of all, as was the aim of Henry the Fourth, while at the same time floating our flags over conquered provinces, stamping our image on all time in an ineffaceable impression of grandeur and authority, elaborating an elite of warriors, poets, sages, and orators, whose glory appears rather to reflect than to add to the supreme effulgence of the throne, while the Sun King himself seems an emanation of the divine radiance, a symbol of deity, a visible sacrament, superior to all the laws and orders of our mortal sphere. France, which had flung herself exhausted at the feet of Henry the Fourth, glittered and flashed like a flaming sword in the grasp of his grandson. At first the king profited by the accumulations of his economical grandfather and by the long and wise administration of Richelieu. The France of Richelieu, indeed, handed Louis his sword, just as France of the Revolution forged the sword of Napoleon. But Louis was a reckless spender. His peace no less costly than his wars. His balls and his palaces ran to as much as his battles. The king's great enterprises were a ruinous expense. So many wars and so much glory. A camp full of heroes, a court full of poets, a church full of orators, among the greatest the world has known, with on all hands such marvellous fairy palaces, Fontainebleau, Vaux, Versailles, a score scarce less splendid, and the exquisite politeness and mastery of daily life which make the least vestige of those days, the private letters, the memoirs, even the state papers, immortal and precious as relics of an unrivalled culture. All this leaves the impression of a France superior to the daily round and common task of humanity. But look below the surface. On the surface is that exquisite, shining veneer. Now there may be much virtue in a veneer. Musicians say that the tone and quality of a violin are entirely regulated by the nature of its varnish, and as tone and quality, the age of Louis the Fourteenth was admirable but underneath that brilliant polish the very substance of which the instrument was made appeared in danger the wood had got the dry rot under henry the fourth king and peasant were friends the king entirely without splendour a brisk shabby gifted little man who had known what it was to go hungry for lack of a dinner the farmer happy in his new-found prosperity which he owed to the king 
their interests were the same. But what could bring together the Sun King in his glory, and the starved brutish tillers of the soil, those sun-blackened human cattle whose portrait La Bruyere has drawn immortally? Not in Russia, not in Ireland, can we see aught so poor as the peasant's miserable mud hovel, his clothes are rags, for wretched as he is, fear and avarice make him seem more wretched still, lest my lord's land agent, suspecting some secret hoard, should add to the rent and redevance that the farmer has to pay. He is ignorant as the ox in his plough, and the chances are ten to one that he knows scarce a word of that fine French language they speak and write so well at court. Very few words, and those in country dialect are sufficient for his needs. These poor serfs, or rather subjects, supported the chief burden of the state, for the nobles and the clergy paid neither taxes, rates, loans, subsidies, nor subvention of any sort or kind. The king was constantly adding to the list of these fortunate exempt ones, so that the swarm of nobles was immense. And the burden of the state was very heavy on those who bore it unhelped, on account of the court, on account of the wars. The wars are splendid and successful. France frees the low countries from the yoke of Spain, adds town after town, province after province to her possessions, snatches from the empire Lille, Metz, Toul, Verdun, Alsace, Franche-Comté, Flanders, Artois, becomes the uncontested leader of Europe. But all these wars take men, take money, and someone must pay the bill. Hodge, in France we call him Jacques, paid the bill. It must not be supposed that the magic of glory, the enchantment of a great art, blinded all the eyes in France to the dangers of the over-splendid and over-centralized monarchy. There was throughout the reign a constant undercurrent of opposition, and at the very beginning of it, before the king acquired his full prestige, there had occurred a real revolution, a something very like our long parliament. It was called the Fronde. The weak point of a hereditary monarchy is the risk of a regency. The history of France is full of stormy regencies. If once or twice the regent proved wiser than the monarch, as when Charles V ruled for his father, Jean Le Bon, or Anne de Beaujeu for her brother, Charles VIII. Still, as an axiom, we may say that a regency is the triumph of misrule. France had experienced the truth of the saying in the regency for Charles the Seventh, in the long domination of the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, and again during the minority of Louis the Thirteenth, when Marie de' Medicis was regent. But the stormiest of all, perhaps, was the minority of Louis XIV. During those same years which troubled the order of England and inaugurated our great revolution, there was in France an echo of the same tumult, a light, laughing echo, as full of gaiety as of carnage, a medley of masquerades and massacres, of ladies and lances, such fine ladies and such free lances, where the generals were the beautiful Madame de Longueville, Madame de Bouillon, and the grand Mademoiselle. One of the actors in the drama, Retz, 
has left us the liveliest picture of it and shows us the hotel de ville in paris where two lovely duchesses had their military headquarters a medley of blue scarves and ladies and cuirasses and violins a sound of drums and of trumpets an atmosphere as of romance of chivalry so writes retz but there was a method in the madness and a logic underneath the laughter as indeed there nearly always is in the great gay tumultuous quarrels of france the manner was different but the matter of the conflict was the same on either side of the channel it was the struggle of parliament and prince of a constitutional government and an absolute monarchy of jesuit on the one side of gallican jansenist and protestant on the other the eternal conflict of authority with freedom voltaire is right enough when he says that these madcaps of frenchmen with their madrigals and their mistresses pursued exactly the same aim as their serious neighbours overseas when they cut off the head of their king avec un acharnement melancolique et une fureur raisonnée where voltaire goes astray is when he supposes that the fronde like the english parliament attained its end the fronde was defeated absolutely for it is as well to undertake seriously so serious a matter as the reform of a national constitution the fronde had to wait a hundred and forty years before this time seriously enough it resumed its heroic effort in seventeen eighty nine for the moment the autocracy of the king was absolute one year after the defeat of the fronde the parliament was required to enregister a certain necessary war loan now nothing is more difficult than to believe that one is dead the parliament its blood still tingling from the recent battle ventured some poor show of criticism or remonstrance they were in full debate when the young king strode into the house dressed in his hunting clothes his horsewhip in his hand gentlemen said he we all know what troubles have lately ensued on your debates i have a plan to prevent any return of the annoyance i order therefore that these debates shall stop monsieur le premier president i forbid you to suffer these assemblies and you gentlemen i refuse you the right to attend them thus was the parliament dissolved in england a similar act produced a revolution in france it inaugurated the era of absolute obedience our western civilizations france and england are by now so thoroughly imbued with democratic theories that we can barely admit what would seem so evident to a contemporary german that louis the fourteenth honestly believed that he was furthering the social progress of his country by turning it aside from the goal of democracy he saw no tyranny in thus dissolving parliament no hardship in levying taxes at his will on an unrepresented people he was the fount of law his royalty was independent of the consent of the governed his standard of values were other than ours but just as logical and coherent his aim was power not peace and since the nation best fitted to wield the sovereign power is that whose citizens submit to a central discipline accepted by all 
he proposed to his subjects an ideal of order not freedom of might not right of faith not truth he praised not justice but sacrifice authority not reason and all this was set in a radiance of national honour and military glory this was the sun king's object which well may not be ours yet it is one of the two greatest conceptions of a strong society such as it was no doubt the military progress of france was ensured by his refusal to accept anything short of absolute centralization monarchy and unity there is in the french character a vein of uncompromising logic a determination to push a proposition to its conclusion which makes french history invaluable to a student during a long reign or at least through more than fifty years of it louis the fourteenth showed us in action the theory of absolute monarchy and if he left his kingdom ruined and in rags he left it not only grander and larger but far greater than france had ever been before the king of france was the leader of europe the king of england was his humble pensioner and his grandson his son's son was one day to reign on the diminished throne of spain already in sixteen sixty four john de witt speaking to the states-general of holland found france alone in europe really great the empire said he is a skeleton whose dry bones are strung together not with living nerves and sinews but with links of wire spain is a broken reed and england under charles the second a servant and pensioner of louis the fourteenth end of section nineteen